Hi, I'm Gavin Giovanoni. I'm a neurologist at uh, Bards and London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and I am the curator or custodian of the MS Selfie newsletter, a site that's specifically designed to help people self-manage their multiple sclerosis. I encourage people to forward case studies to me for me to answer so everybody else can use the information to try and relate it to their own MS management. So this is a case study of a 32-year-old uh, woman with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis who has been on Ocaluzumab for just over two years. And she informs me uh, by email that since starting Ocaluzumab she's had two serious chest infections requiring hospital admission to hospital. I suspect they were probably pneumonia. And she also had a delayed serious infusion reaction uh, that had to be uh, treated with steroids. Uh, in addition to this, she's experienced progressive worsening of her neurological symptoms uh, with MRI confirmation of a relapse uh, whilst on the treatment, and she asked me for her advice. <laughs> Firstly, I want to point out that, yes, serious infections uh, do occur. These are infections requiring hospitalization uh, on ocrelizumab, like they do on any other immunosuppressive therapy, but they are very uncommon. So in the latest uh, safety data from the Phase 3 Ocrelizumab program of over 5,500 patients with almost 20,000 years of follow-up, the serious infection rate uh, per annum was uh, two infections per 1,000 patient years. So in other words, of every 1,000 patients on Ocrelizumab for 12 months, only two patients require admission to hospital because of a serious infection. I want to point out the corollary to this is that 998, the vast majority of them, have no serious infections. So for this particular individual to have two serious infections is really unlucky, or she may have a confounding risk factor that puts her at high risk of infections. And this could be uh, age, uh, which is unlikely. Most people with serious infections tend to be older than 50, so they have superimposed immune senescence. They're more likely to be disabled with an EDSS score, a disability score of six or more. They often have multiple comorbidities, and the more comorbidities you have, like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, chest problems, etc., the more likely you are to get serious infections. And those with low immunoglobulin levels also. Uh, the, the low immunoglobulin levels tends to come on after many years of treatment and doesn't appear to happen in the first two years. So there is something worrying about this particular patient. Now, the types of infections you get on anti-CD20 therapy tend to occur in relation to bacteria that have capsules around them. One of them is pneumococcus that affects the lung. The other one's meningococcus that can cause meningitis. And then there's a, a infection that tends to affect children more than adults called Haemophilus influenza. Now, all of these three bacterial infections can be de-risked. There are vaccines available for them. And we tend to offer patients um, vaccination prior to starting oculizumab therapy to de-risk this complication. Now, in the UK, um, we tend to routinely offer pneumococcal vaccination to all our patients. And we only offer meningococcal and H-influenza, Haemophilus influenza vaccines to people who uh, are at high risk of being exposed to these infections. These tend to be students living in dormitories, university students, or military recruits. So not everybody gets offered routinely a meningococcal or H-influenza vaccine. But everybody should have a pneumococcal vaccine uh, starting, given to them prior to starting ocrelizumab. <laughs>
Now, what about hypoglobulinemia? anemia? It does become a problem the longer you've been on anti-CD20 therapies, uh, and it can be treated by immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Now, you'll probably be aware that, um, or may not be aware, um, we can give immunoglobulin replacement therapy, and this does occur particularly in pediatrics or children, uh, and even in adults with other autoimmune diseases on anti-CD20 therapies. Um, there is no consensus of how or what to do in, in oculizumab treated patients, but because there's so many of them, it hasn't been agreed or vetted by the uh, NHS, so we can't actually give immunoglobulin replacement therapy for oculizumab treated people with MS. Um, I think it's got to do with availability of immunoglobulin and the cost uh, of it. Another option is to give prophylactic antibiotics. So if people are getting recurrent infections with uh, these uh, bacteria, we can put you on uh, penicillin prophylaxis. This is uh, what happens in people who've had splenectomies, for example. And this covers you for uh, serious pneumococcal and meningococcal infections. So this is another option. Now, a lot of my colleagues, both in the UK and internationally, have been using this thing called adaptive dosing. What they do is they delay uh, the next infusion of oculizumab. So instead of giving every six months, they give it every nine, 10, 11, 12 months. And they base this on the ability, um, wait until your B cells start coming back. And the assumption is this is safer. Now they're basing this assumption on a small extension trial of the phase two oculizumab trial, where people um, had three or four courses of oculizumab and then they didn't receive any further dosing for at least 18 months. Now, 18 months since your last dose is a long period of time, and almost everybody recovers their B cells. And in that particular study, infection risks were lower in people who had reconstituted their B cells versus those that get continuous dosing, for example, or in the continuous dosing phase of the trial. Now, that's not the same as adaptive dosing because most people are adopting what we call um, giving the next dose of oculizumab when the B cells in the peripheral blood get above 0.5% of the total lymphocyte count. And that usually occurs on average at about nine months. And those small increase in B cells are still extremely low and don't represent a normal B cell count by any means. So the difference between giving oculizumab every nine months or waiting for an 18-month washout is a big difference. They're not the same. So I don't think we can extrapolate that small 18-month washout study with the way we are doing adaptive dosing. And um, there are some small published trials where groups of people there may have gone on to adaptive dosing, and there appears not to be a difference in the effectiveness in terms of relapses and MRI activity uh, or adverse events. Another thing that's very influential is the Swedish uh, cohort, because in Sweden they use a lot of rituximab, it's a first-generation anti-CD20, and works in a similar way to ocrelizumab. And in Sweden they have various dosing strategies. Some people give every six months, others every 12 months, nine months. But what they did in Sweden is they collected all their data in their registry and they divided up their population of MS patients who were treated with 750 milligrams per year or less, uh, or 750 milligrams or higher. Uh, so a high or low dose group, and they compared them in terms of effectiveness on MRI and relapses, which were equal. So there wasn't any obvious difference on inflammatory disease activity. And interestingly, there wasn't any obvious difference in safety or immunoglobulin levels between the two groups. 
So this is why I personally think it's very premature to assume that extending the interval between dosing is going to necessarily be safer than giving ocaluzumab every six months. And I have highlighted many times in a previous newsletter, for example, that we have to treat beyond relapses and MRI activity. And even though these two doses, the high and low dose, may look the same when it comes to suppressing relapses and MRI activity, in other words, rendering people uh, no evident inflammatory disease activity, it may not be the same when it comes to smoldering MS or disability progression. And this is why I personally think uh, to assume that these two doses are equivalent in terms of effectiveness is premature. We really need to do large controlled trials uh, and not only look at relapses and MRI activity, but look at disease progression, look at brain volume loss, look at slowly expanding lesion, all those processes that I call smoldering disease. And this is what we want to do in a, a large UK trial called the ADIOS, Adaptive um, um, Interval Dosing of Ocrelizumab Trial. Now, you're going to criticize me and say, well, I've been giving patients a choice uh, whether or not to continue with six-monthly, what I call standard interval dosing, or delaying the next dose to three by three or six months to allow some B-cell reconstitution that people can have COVID-19 vaccines and mountain antibody response. Yes, I've been giving people choice because we know that uh, people who have a little bit of B-cell recovery which typically occurs at about nine months after your last ocrelizumab dose, are much more likely to make an antibody response to the COVID-19 vaccines. However, those antibody responses are not ideal. They're still quite low level or low titer, as we say in, in medicine. And we now know that those levels are probably not sufficient to prevent people being infected with the new Omicron variant, which is an immune escape variant and really needs extremely high levels of antibody to stop you getting uh, infection. So uh, I have no idea if the strategy has been effective or not and whether or not those people with uh, antibody responses to the vaccine have better outcomes than those who have not. Now, I think this argument has probably become redundant uh, for several reasons. Firstly, we now have effective antivirals that target coronavirus. but And in the UK now in NHS, we give those to vulnerable patients. That includes MS patients on anti-CD20 therapies. So we have antivirals, both oral and intravenous. Also, this new variant is less severe, so you're much more likely to need admission to hospital or ITU with it. Uh, also, if you've had your vaccines, uh, even though you may not have antibody responses, you should have good T-cell immunity, which should protect you from getting severe COVID-19. And the other thing is we've also got a lot of other treatments that are been given to, to reduce the severity of COVID-19. So everything has changed. And so um, uh, I personally think that we probably should drop this extended uh, or, or delayed interval dosing for vaccine readiness, simply because we now have other options to manage uh, COVID-19. And I remain, uh, I remain to be convinced whether or not this delayed vaccine readiness strategy uh, is safer. Uh, we really need to wait to see if data emerges, whether or not those people that have had a uh, an antibody, albeit a blunted antibody response, do better in terms of COVID-19 outcomes in the event they get COVID-19 or other infections versus those people they MS continue on six monthly. And I think you've got to be aware that um, we are moving people or recommending, or some people are recommending moving people to this, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-month gap between doses on the 
assumption that it's safer without knowing whether or not it's equivalent in efficacy to six monthly dosing. And so this is why it's essential we go ahead and do a, a, a comparative randomized control trial. I think the other point about COVID is that it's not going to go away. It's going to become endemic. Uh, and in the near future, I'd imagine we are going to be getting annual or biannual or whatever uh, vaccines to deal with new variants. Put that on top of the seasonal influenza vaccine, emerging infections like Zika virus and some existing exotic viral infections You know, that you get in tropical countries like dengue fever and yellow fever. The um, uh, infection risk... Uh, and the vaccine landscape becomes incredibly complicated. And it's going to be very difficult working out how to dose to, to, to give vaccine responses. And I think that um, uh, people with multiple sclerosis have got to realize that MS is a really bad disease. And we have completely changed the outlook by using you know, more effective immunosuppressive therapies to manage this disease, including anti-CD20 therapies. And what we now see in 2022 is a completely different disease to what we had in the pre-DMT era. And so I think like in other autoimmune uh, diseases that are very disabling, people with multiple sclerosis don't really have alternatives to immunosuppression to treat uh, the MS. So I think, you know, as a group, people with MS are going to have to accept the risks of immunosuppression live with these risks, but at the same time, they need to be aware that we can potentially de-risk them with vaccines before you start, prophylactic antibiotics, potentially immunoglobulin replacement therapy. You also have to remain vigilant and obviously be very proactive with any infections you may develop. And I also want to point out that that infection risk is not such a big risk. You know, we overblow the risks and we forget the benefits of these uh, treatments, particularly when we look at the uh, uh, outcome of untreated or undertreated uh, multiple sclerosis. So um, uh, please keep that in mind. Now, what was worrying about this particular case study, she did mention that she had quite a serious infusion reaction and breakthrough disease activity. Now, when you use uh, anti-CD20 like ocrelizumab, most infusion reactions occur with the first half dose when you're first lysing or breaking those uh, B cells and they release their contents causing the infusion reaction. The, the infusion reaction rate is, is about a quarter of people develop infusion reactions. And in our experience, they're very mild. We manage them with uh, pre-dosing with low doses, relatively low doses of steroids, antihistamines and antipyretics, paracetamol or ibuprofen, and they're not really a problem. This particular uh, person said she had a delayed infusion reaction. It came on you know, not with the first infusion, but uh, after the other infusions, and was quite serious and required uh, treatment. This is much more in keeping with the uh, uh, rare phenomenon of developing anti-drug antibodies, where your own immune system rejects ocrelizumabs and makes antibodies to it. And the reason for that is there's a small fragment on the ocrelizumab that's a foreign fragment. It comes from a mouse and it's not from a human. And so your own immune system can reject ocrelizumab. And we call those anti-drug antibodies. And they are responsible for allergic type infusion reactions. So I'd be worried that this patient had anti-drug antibodies. She also says that she's had breakthrough disease activity. Now that is unusual. And if it does occur, I always have to review the diagnosis because sometimes people don't have MS, get diagnosed with MS and put on ocrelizumab. So I think she should have her diagnosis reviewed. 
but she should also have uh, peripheral B cell uh, levels uh, measured because if she has anti-drug antibodies, they could be neutralizing. In other words, they stop the drug from depleting the peripheral B cells. And if she does have uh, peripheral B cells and she's not depleted, it means that she probably has neutralizing antibodies and therefore the drug's not working in her and she's at higher risk of having recurrent infusion reactions and so she'd have to stop uh, ocrelizumab and switch to another DMT. So um, I'd like to conclude then that the um, apparent evidence of absence, in other words, the small, uh, very tiny database showing no difference in effectiveness and or safety between standard and uh, adaptive or delayed interval dosing of ocrelizumab and other anti-CD20 therapies like rituximab should not be accepted Okay, uh, in the absence of evidence i.e. properly controlled properly powered studies to make us feel confident that there are real differences that we are worthy uh, of adopting a, uh, ad uh, adaptive dosing strategy. So my personal uh, opinion is people who are on ocrelizumab should continue on six monthly dosing and only move to delayed or adaptive dosing for specific uh, reasons or personal choice. It should not be a, a strategy that we use for treating all our MS patients until we have uh, good class one or two evidence to convince us uh, that there are differences. Uh, um, and I think what clouds this is economics. Obviously, the more infrequently you use a drug, the cheaper it is. And there's lots of pressure uh, on healthcare providers um, by payers to reduce the costs of uh, disease-modifying therapy. But I don't think we should be worrying about that for, uh, until we're confident that there are real differences and uh, benefits to patients. Finally, if you've enjoyed this uh, newsletter, please feel free to pass the email on or forward it to uh, friends or family or other people who you think may be interested. And uh, I am uh, funding this by readers subscribing to the MSLV uh, newsletters. I'm using the funds to uh, uh, hire a medical writer and a web designer who are going to uh, create a microsite, a small website um, that's going to be curated and indexed about all the content on the site. So if you have MS, you don't have to come to the uh, MS Selfie website or trawl through previous emails. You can find all the information uh, indexed. And I personally just don't have the bandwidth or time uh, to do this. So. Um, the money uh, subscriptions you are giving are much appreciated and will allow the wider MS community uh, in the f near future, I hope we're hoping to launch it in the middle of the year, um, access to a, a nicely curated, easy to find website. Thank you.